Chapter 3 of The Mute Singer by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 3 Maitre Bougeot's Violin. Sylvie slept but little that night, but as the gray light of morning stole into her humble chamber as she rose, she went quietly about her usual duties, arranged the apartment, prepared the breakfast, and carefully made the coffee, upon which her parents chiefly depended for refreshment. She moved about with a mien as composed as if this first great venture in life had not been missed, though she had little doubt that it must be foregone. On opening the door to receive her daily supply of milk, she encountered Maitre Bougeot, passing hastily through the entry, with his beloved violin under his arm. Sylvie started to see him at this early hour, for he habitually was a late riser, and often owned his fondness for the pleasant morning nap, that sweet semi-conscious slumber which is too light to be haunted by troubled dreams, too deep to be disturbed by waking anxieties. Sylvie remarked that the musician's face was far paler than usual. It looked positively cadaverous. He was too much absorbed to perceive her until she saluted him. Then his features worked convulsively, and, with an agitated air, he muttered, Go in, go in, I don't want to see you. But my master, began Sylvie beseechingly, and advancing towards him, Don't come near me, little Lal. You look hideous this morning. Don't speak to me, I say. I'll not hear a word. There's your chamber door, open, and if I tell you I should catch a glimpse of that silly mother and weak father of yours, or if I even heard their voices, I could not answer for my own resolution. So get in your room, will you? Shut the door, and don't molest me. For once, Sylvie seemed inclined to disobey, but he waved her off and rushed down the stairs. How strangely he looks! What can ail him? she murmured. He never goes out at this hour, and has no lessons to give so early in the morning. Yet he has his violin. Perhaps he could not sleep after the dreadful disappointment of last night, and has gone to wander about until the hour for his first lesson arrives. Ah! Oh, no one gives him credit for possessing the kind heart that lies hidden under his rough exterior. He would not speak to me because he has not the courage to allude to that severe trial to us both. Yet I should have told him that I could bear it patiently, hopefully. Other chances may come as unexpectedly as this one came, who knows? And perhaps I should only fail if I sang at concert with so little preparation. That must be the reason why I am prevented from making the attempt. Thus. This trustful, calm-spirited young maiden consoled herself as she returned to her labors. Breakfast consisted only of bread and coffee, and was soon over. Sylvie and her parents had partaken of the meal almost in silence. Her mother looked positively ill, from the absence of all rest during the night, and her father, whose states of high excitement were usually followed by fits of dejection, was now painfully depressed. In these moods he seldom talked, but Sylvie knew how much he suffered when he silently kissed her forehead and departed to seek occupation. 
for at that moment he was wholly out of employment. As the door closed behind him, Sylvie turned caressingly to her melancholy mother, stole the needle she was mechanically threading out of her hands, and entreated her to lie down and try to sleep. Madame de la Roche, who really felt unable to sit up, made but feeble opposition to her daughter's wish. In a few moments she fell into a profound slumber. Sylvie did not venture to open the piano for fear of rousing her, but took up the piece of sewing she had coaxed out of her weak hands and sat down by the open window. At the casement stood the small pot of mignonette, one of Matayu's small offerings. The summer air, passing over the flowers, carried their delicate aroma into the room, and Sylvie smiled involuntarily as she inhaled the perfume. That odorous breath was a pleasant and hopeful messenger. Those flowers grew in obscurity, were gazed upon only by the eyes of poverty, yet they absorbed the bright sunshine and drank in the rain, and blossomed and gave out the sweet odor with which they were endowed. Their gift of fragrance was not wasted, for it often gladdened her and her sad mother, who had so little gladness in their lives. Would Sylvie's own gift prove more valueless than that of the lowly flower? Humble blossoms seem to answer her with their sweetness. No, this scent is for us, and that voice of melody for you, and both for some use. A bang at the door, which flew back as if it were kicked open, broke the mother's slumber. She sprang up with a faint cry. No piano going? All quiet? Have you fallen asleep again, lazy bones? exclaimed Maitre Bougeot, noisily entering. Sylvia rose and was about to explain. How do you expect, at this rate, to be ready with the Simiramide tomorrow night, eh? Tomorrow night? cried Sylvie joyfully. Yes, tomorrow night, parrot. Are you not to sing in a duet with La Blanche at Count Castellane's tomorrow night? Am I truly? Truly you are. And if you don't sing true, I've done with you forever. But the dress, I hold it in the palm of my hand. And the shoes and stockings and glove and sash and handkerchief, chimed in Madame de la Roche as she sat up on the side of the bed. All in the same small compass, see? And he caught Sylvie's hand and closed her slight fingers over four gold coins, three louis d'or and a half. Oh, my master, my master, how shall I ever thank you? How have you done this? What's it to you? It's done. That's enough. It will buy what you need to make you presentable, won't it, little fright? It won't make you handsome, but it will let people hear a voice that is worth all the beauty in the world. It's enough, is it not? I consulted my mother. She understands these feminine matters, and according to her calculations, there is a dress and all the other silly paraphernalia in those four bits of gold. Oh, that's more than enough, a deal more, I'm sure, replied Sylvie, whose tiny hand had never before held such a treasure. 
But how is the dress to be purchased and, and cut out and made up in time? It is quite impossible. And who is to make it? I can't cut a dress in any modern fashion, and Sylvie knows nothing of dressmaking. Here's a dress to know a dressmaker. We're just as far off from good fortune as ever, groaned Madame de la Roche. And you will always keep far off with your eternal croaking, angrily answered Maitre Bougeot. You are so determined to make difficulties and see nothing but the dark side and be fond of nothing but trouble that you deserve nothing else. Yes, you know you are fond of it and you would not seek after difficulty so pertinaciously. Maitre Bougeot, you must not speak in that manner to my dear mother, answered Sylvie seriously. I am sure, mother, that I have found a way of getting a dress made. It came to my head as I was pondering over the possibilities last night. That good Mademoiselle Ursule, who lives in the story below us, is a mantua-maker. I heard her say that she had very little work just now. I am confident that she can make my dress by tomorrow night, with your help and mine. Yours? Yours, indeed? And what is to become of your practicing? cried Bougeot. Let me see how you dare to thread a needle, even, and I'll burn the dress in an instant. Let us buy it first, just to enable you to do that, replied Sylvie in a merry tone. Only grant me time to speak to Mademoiselle Ursule and to make the needful purchases, for my mother is so much indisposed this morning that she cannot go out, and then I will faithfully practice for the rest of the day. When you come this evening, you shall see what progress I have made. Sylvie threw her shabby mantle over her shoulders as she spoke, tied on her old straw bonnet, and was hastening out of the room, but stopped suddenly and went up to Maitre Bougeot. Oh, but how selfish and thoughtless I am. I do not pause to tell you how grateful you have rendered me. I do not ask you what sacrifice you have made to obtain this money, and I am sure that you have made one. That was your errand out so early this morning. Tell me, my master, how you borrowed those seventy francs. Chatterbox, get away, will you? What business is it of yours? What have you to do with my private affairs? Let me hear no more impertinent questions. Sylvie saw that her master was in earnest. He nervously pulled at his moustache, and his mouth twitched as though he were affected by some unpleasant recollections. Then I will only ask if you will be here at the usual time this evening. I intend to come two hours earlier, so... Be ready. But your pupils. I shall give no lessons today. Maitre Bougeot cleared his throat with some violence, for his voice was husky. Then he took from his old horn box a large and consolatory pinch of snuff. No lessons? Why, do you intend to stand here chattering all day? Do you intend to forget all about that dress without which a girl can't make any music any more than a harp without strings? I am going. Adieu, Mama. Sylvie ran gaily down the stairs, and the music master retired to his chamber. As Mademoiselle Ursule had passed her prime and was still unmarried, 
we are compelled to designate her as an old maid. She was a brisk, bright, soft-hearted creature who took almost as much interest in the young as though they brought back her youth, yet felt as great sympathy with the aged as though she had always been old. Indeed, she seemed ever ready to enter into the joys or sorrows, the hopes or schemes of others, partly because any intercourse with the world interrupted the monotony of her existence, and partly because she was naturally unselfish. Sylvie was her chief favorite, though she saw her but seldom. She had long been acquainted with the object of the musical education the young girl was receiving from Maitre Bourgeau, and Sylvie's present communication filled her with delight. She engaged to commence the dress with all speed, and in a few moments was ready to sally forth to make good the needful purchases. Ursule did not lack the good taste which it is characteristic of her countrywomen. She selected for Sylvie's attire a simple white muslin. If the means at command had permitted, it would have been a very fine instead of a rather coarse muslin, but no richer material would have been preferred. Sylvie listened in astonishment while the shrewd spinster quarreled about the price and beat the shopkeeper down sou by sou. At last the bargain was completed and the dress secured for forty francs. What an enormous amount it seemed to Sylvie! The same process of cheapening had to be gone through over the stockings, which were bought for two francs, and then it was vigorously repeated when the sash, gloves, and the handkerchief were chosen. Six francs were paid for the sash, two and a half for the gloves, and eight for the handkerchief. Five francs more were expended in what the mantua makers styled sundries, leaving but six francs and a half. A shoemaker had next to be visited, and Sylvie's slender foot, when it was encased in a neatly fitted satin slipper, looked as though it were an inheritance from Cinderella. All Ursule's arguments and entreaties could not obtain the pretty slippers for less than six francs, which left just half a franc out of the seventy Maitre Bougeot had supplied. Sylvie was astonished. She had no conception that what seemed to be a little fortune could melt away so rapidly, and apparently without being the result of any extravagance. Only half a franc over, and how was she to pay for the making of the dress? But when she expressed her concern at this deficiency of means, Ursule answered laughingly, I don't eat my kind. I would not take payment from one so poor or poorer than myself. You will owe me nothing. Madame de la Roche revived a little as Sylvie displayed her purchases, and when, soon after, Ursule entered the room, armed with a thimble and scissors and other mantua-making implements, the poor invalid was stirred by a pleasant excitement which had been unknown to her for years. Very quickly the white muslin was cut and fitted, and the two elder women were seated in a corner chattering like magpies, and Sylvie was at the piano drowning their dissonant voices in a torrent of melody. 
Such was the disposition of the group when Maitre Bougeot entered. He gave a contemptuous glance at the feminine finery scattered about, and answered Sylvie so gruffly as she remarked upon his arrival that Ursule was speedily awed into silence. By and by she discovered that she had lost the measure of Sylvie's girdle, but it was some time before she could summon the courage to approach her and make a frightened attempt to pass the tray around her slender waist. "'What are you doing here?' demanded Maitre Bougeot sternly. "'Do you suppose that I am going to have my lesson interrupted by any of this foolery?' Ursule retreated rapidly and sheltered herself by the side of Madame de la Roche. Sylvie gave the mantua-maker a comical glance without hazarding a remark, and demurely went on with her lesson. It was closed by her tutor saying, No more tonight. It will tire your voice, and we must have it fresh for tomorrow. He had spoken in so kind a tone that Sylvie thought he would surely reward her by playing on his violin as usual. She rose and took her place on the little stool beside her mother's feet, her seat of rest, but Maitre Bougeot had his cap in his hand and was departing. Will you not play for me tonight? Why, where's your violin? I never saw you without it before. Sylvie had only then noticed the absence of his inseparable companion. "'What business is it of yours?' replied Bougeot, tugging fiercely at his moustache. "'Have I not the right to do what I please with my own?' His manner and the agitation apparent in his voice betrayed him. Sylvie sprang to his side, almost falling over the white muslin which entangled itself in her feet. "'Oh, my master, the dress, the dress, your violin, I know, I know!' Maitre Bougeot made a movement to repulse her and tried to deny that her surmise was correct, but fairly broke down and hid his confusion in repeated pinches of snuff. If you had not parted with your violin, I should not have that dress to wear tomorrow. But your violin that you were so fond of, you have not sold it. Surely you would not do that. No, no, Sylvie, I could not have done that for anyone hardly for my own mother. I did not think I could not have done what I have done, yet there were no other way. I took the violin to a pawnbroker's close by. It was like parting with an only child to give it up. I loved it better, I think, than I could love a child. I could not bear anyone to touch it. I charged the man not to handle it. Sylvie interrupted him with more feeling than strict politeness. "'Will they pay me tomorrow if I succeed?' "'Pay you? No, indeed. There was not a word said about payment. You are only singing on trial. Besides, it is a charity concert, and the musicians volunteer their services.' "'Then they will not give me anything, and I shall not be able to get back your violin.' You will certainly not. If you were wonderfully successful, the court may only possibly present you with some little token of regard. That's often done, but it will be nothing that can put bread into your mouth or redeem my violin. So don't build castles with your father's style of masonry. Go to bed early, rest, and let me see you fresh in the morning looking your best. 
your least ugly, I mean. I shall be here soon after breakfast. Remember, no curving your chest in with sewing. I'll not have you take a stitch upon that nonsensical dress. He pointed disdainfully at the white muslin as he left the room. His exit opened the floodgates of Rasool's talk, and how she ran on. Sylvie could not listen. She was thinking of the old man's violin. Shortly after the music-maker retired, Monsieur de la Roche entered, looking very low-spirited, but when he beheld the breadths of white muslin scattered about, Ursule's needle-flying, and his rather lagging company, while Sylvie prepared supper, his spirits went up like a skyrocket. He discovered forthwith that he had all day experienced a presentiment that he would find the whole affair settled, and that he was equally certain that before the year expired he would drive that noble pair of greys in the Bois de Boulogne. End of chapter 3